All right. We return back to our study of dispensationalism. I'll give a quick review here in a minute. Um, two interesting emails I received. One I received at 6.45 a.m. this morning. The other one I received, I believe, yesterday. Uh, this one deals with our ongoing work on law and gospel. They uh, say this. They say, thanks for your podcast. Been listening to several different ones. My thinking has totally changed since listening to some of the messages on law and gospel and recently some on misinterpreting 1 John. I've always thought of it like most people, but after listening to you, I can't anymore. There's no way we can keep his commandments perfectly, constantly, etc. So someone obviously heard me repeat that over and over and over and over and over and over again. At this point, I'm looking at 1 John as a test of fellowship mostly, and keeping in mind its polemic against Gnosticism. That's, I think that'll work much better than if you do it as a test of someone's faith. It says, thanks again for your episodes. I'm all over the place listening to different ones. They do challenge me to really think critically. I found an article with someone with a view closer to yours on 1 John this morning. That's shocking. They, put, they gave me a link to the article, which does sound a lot like us, so that's good. It says, and yes, you're correct and that the test of salvation view is almost everyone else's view. And that comes to us from uh, Tennessee. And then I got this uh, one, which says, so I I dropped in here and there on your dispensational material. Interesting that you're studying Schofield's, you know, introductory material to see where he is coming from. Your approach is like Descartes. And I'm like, oh, wow, I get connected. I get likened to a French philosopher. Well, well, what do I do? Right? I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm retiring right now, right? Okay, he says, your approach is like Descartes, doubting everything. That is not me. That is, I do not doubt everything. Come on. That is not a great analogy. I felt very offended by that. I don't doubt anything. Okay, no, it says, <laughs> this is what they say. You doubt the systems. You doubt the interpretation. You doubt the received wisdom. Okay, I doubt everything. It says, then you pull everything apart and then you rebuild it. There's a place for that because we need to question our assumptions. Don't stop being that voice. Well, that's great. But if you come look here at this church, you may realize it's not a big market for yeah, they're too far to drive. Of course. Yeah. Everyone who likes me doesn't live anywhere near us. Okay. All right. It says Descartes did the same thing with the medieval worldview he inherited. And he definitely did. He questioned everything. So um, I, I've been trying to question everything I've inherited in my Christian life. It says, and then it says, don't overlook the wider changes in America that made the Schofield Bible a symbol of fundamentalism. It was released right before a big shift where fundamentalism separated itself. And he gives me an an article to the Scopes trial, which was a very major turning point in American Christianity because you really, the Scopes trial led some to kind of leave fundamentalism and take much more of a different approach to society because we didn't want to look foolish or ignorant or dumb. And others said, we're just going to double down. And then you can argue where all that plays. So he put places it in a broader historical context. Now, 
He gives me all kinds of other notes to look at in the Schofield Bible. You should consider this. You, well, at some point we will try. But um, I just thought, I, I do like the fact that someone at least gets what I've tried to do because that's what I, to be honest, that's what I try to do. I, I never really likened myself to Descartes, Descartes but I'm more than willing to take that uh, you know, comparison because I do, I do question everything. I do doubt everything. And I do try to do what? Tear everything apart. Now, what happens when I start tearing apart? What's typically the reaction to me tearing everything apart? Immediately, people get defensive. People get defensive, and they get angry. Instead of doing what? Hey, let's tear it apart. Let's do what? Let's build it back up and see what we get. Because sometimes, if you wait long enough, what happens? What happens? Sometimes when I build it back up, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, why was I getting so upset, right? Now, sometimes I build it back up and you're like, he's worse off than he started, okay? But, but the best thing to always do is at least let me do what? Build it back up and then you can do what? You can then say, okay, well, that's not as bad as I, not as bad as I thought. Now, you just got to let me do so. But as soon as I start ripping off the roof, you, people what are you doing? Put the roof back on. I'm like, no, the roof's got to go and the walls have to go and the foundation has to be scraped from the face of the earth and then we nuke the world, right? And then you are like, that's a little extreme. But that's sometimes we have to go to extreme to do what? To get rid of the assumptions, okay? And so when we've been talking about Schofield, we did start with all of his introductory material, right? We're still in it. We're still in it. And we're doing this to establish what? What am I trying to establish with all of this time looking at this introductory material? Well, I'm trying to demonstrate that a system is already being built before we get to the actual system, Right? Because his system is dispensationalism. That's what he's known for. But every, I, I, you cannot, I, I cannot drive this point home enough. I don't care where you went to church. I don't care anything about the history of your Christian life. I know this. You were given a system before you were given the text. And whether you like it or not, that system has become the hermeneutic in which you're interpreting the Bible, meaning you're not doing exegesis, no matter how much you claim you are, you're doing eisegesis because you're reading your system into the text and then you're arguing that the Bible says what you think it says, but in reality, you're not dealing with the text. You're dealing with a system, right? And so if you're trying to argue the text and someone's arguing a system, there's no point in having the argument because you're not talking about the same thing. But the people who argue the system will claim that they're arguing Scripture, which is then, oh, it's maddening. So we've been trying to demonstrate this. And so we have established in the the last hour, if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to it. We established that Schofield up to this point in his introductory material, I'm not going to review everything that we've covered so far, but I'm going to make sure everyone writes these things down. There are three, three fundamental principles, fundamental hermeneutical principles he's given to us before we ever get to dispensationalism. These fundamental hermeneutical principles he's given us are as follows. Number one, that the Old Testament is nation-centric. And from Genesis 11 to Acts 2 is about the nation of Israel, not the church, 
not God's people per se in some generic way, the nation of Israel. Number two, that in the Old Testament is a large section made up of what we call the prophets, major and minor. And these prophets and prophecies point to and speak of a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. These are fundamental hermeneutical principles that he's got. And whether you've ever touched a Schofield Bible, whether you've ever been near it, you've been, even, you have either been given a system that says, this is the way you read the Bible, or you've been given a system that says, you don't read the Bible that way. I will argue, take those two hermeneutical principles I've just given you, go buy yourself a Matthew Henry commentary, read the Old Testament from a Matthew Henry commentary, will you be given that system? No, because Matthew Henry is operating from a completely different system, which is one of the most things that will confuse me as long as I live. Churches have always made this mistake. You know how many times I was told to buy a Matthew Henry commentary when I was an independent fundamental Baptist? I I was told that a million times. You know why I was told that? Because the people who told me that I never bothered to read the thing. All right? Just like in my independent fundamental Baptist, every month I put up at the altar these little pamphlets that had sermons by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Guess who guess what went home and read those? I did. Guess what was in that? Straight up Calvinism. Guess when I started talking about Calvinism, what happened to me? I got kicked out of the Bible Institute, and I'm like, you're the one who gave me Calvinism. Like, no, we did not. I'm like, you know those sermons? So I had them all, you know, marked up, and I'm like, well, I, I did. What do you mean you didn't know? How did you not know Spurgeon was a Calvinist? What, what planet do you live on? Don't give out a book if you haven't read the thing. That's the same group of people who handed me a book saying, this book will tell you why all the other translations are wrong and the King James is the best. And I came back going, this argues the King James is not the best. Why did you give? Oh, I didn't know that. Could you read the books before you hand them to someone, please? Could you? Could you? So, but everyone should get a Matthew Henry just so that you can see the different systems. You really should, right? You really should. So what is his two, his two key hermeneutical principles? Number one, national centric Old Testament, Genesis 11 to Acts 2, all about the nation of Israel. Number two, the, the, and within the Old Testament are prophets and prophecies that point to and prophesy of a glorious, Future for the nation of Israel under the reign of Christ. And number three, the church did not exist until Acts, where it was a new thing. A new thing. Meaning then, how would you then interpret all the promises in the Old Testament? To the nation of Israel. All right. Does everyone get that? If you leave here this morning and you know those three key elements, then you know, uh, you, you know where we are going here, okay? All right, everybody got that? Now I'm going to go back and read that paragraph one more time that we stopped the last hour with, all right? We didn't finish the paragraph, but we're going to do so. Here we go. According to Schofield, this is in his introductory, his, his, 
his uh, introductory material. Here we go. The Acts of the Apostles record the descent of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of a new thing in human history. The church. The division of the race now becomes threefold. Now, please note, this is very important. All right? Listen to this. This becomes another key hermeneutical principle of Schofield. You ready? Everybody ready for this? The division of the race now becomes threefold. What is Schofield's threefold division of the race? When he says the race, he's referring to the human race. What is the threefold division of the human race according to Schofield? The Jews, the Gentiles, the church of God. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Everyone knows this, right? Listen, just as Israel is in the foreground from the call of Abraham to the resurrection of Christ, so now the church fills in the scene from the second chapter of Acts to the fourth chapter of Revelation. All right? So here's another, here's another hermeneutical principle. Here's another. So let's go through. Look, if you don't get anything today, you're going to leave here. You're going to know Schofield's hermeneutical principles, right? Because whether you know Schofield or not, some of you have been operating from this hermeneutical system a good portion of your Christian life. And whether you knew it or not, whether right or wrong, you were reading the system into the text. You were not deriving this from the text. You were reading it into the text because I doubt many of you spent hours and hours and hours and hours painstakingly exegeting the text to try to derive these principles. These principles were assumed and you read them into the text. And then you would tell everyone that that's what the Bible says. Of course it's what the Bible says because you've been reading it into the Bible. All right? So what are the principles? Number one, the Old Testament is nation-centric. And from Genesis 11 to Acts 2, it's all about the nation of Israel. I want you, look, I'm going to repeat these 375 times until we have these memorized today, okay? All right, number two. The Old Testament has prophets and prophecies. And these prophets and prophecies foretell of a glorious future of the nation of Israel under the reign of Christ. I don't know how many schools I had. I, I, I can't even tell you how many tests I've been given where this, this, this were, these were questions on the test I were given. They came right from Schofield. I didn't know it at the time. I had no clue that it was coming from Schofield. I should have figured it out because it had been easy for me to study for the test, right? I could have been like, can I use my Bible? Okay, because I could have just went to the Schofield and like, here's all the answers to the test, right? Now, schools that didn't go with this system, I, had, I, I would have needed another source, all right? But number three, The church did not exist. It was a new thing that begins in Acts. Everybody got that? Okay. And number four. Threefold division of the human race. And what is that threefold division? Jew, Gentile, and the church. Jew, Gentile, and the church. And then what's the number five? What's the next one? Here we go. You ready? 
from the second chapter of Acts to the fourth chapter of Revelation, it's all about the church. From Acts 2 to the fourth chapter of Revelation, it's all about the church. Now, this, is, this has a major implication because since the church is no longer mentioned, according to Schofield, after Revelation chapter 4, guess what everyone believes happens in Revelation chapter 4 who holds to this system? The rapture. This is where the rapture is said to occur. Now, and again, if you, if you try to argue with someone about this, they will say, well, well, wait a minute, the church is not mentioned after Revelation 4. And I'm like, and you came to that because of your deep exegetical study or because you've been taught by someone who has read the Schofield Study Bible. But you can't, con- when you try to argue with someone, they just get mad at you and it's like, you're giving me Schofield. And you're like, no, I'm giving you the Bible. No, I guarantee you, you didn't spend hours in exegetical reading. You just are giving me Schofield. But they don't know they're giving you Schofield. And it's so hard to talk to people when that happens. You just have to walk away going, never mind. Just, never mind. Because, because it's just like your system versus my system. That's really all it is. It reminds me of the early days of mixed martial arts. Whichever, your martial arts system versus my martial arts system, and which one is the, the most important system. You know, now it becomes its own system. But you get the, you get the idea. That's really how it, it works. And, and so it's just death. But yeah, you know, I guess you battle to the death, and whoever's standing at the end, their system wins. But guess what gets sacrificed in all of that? The actual scriptures. All right? So we got these down. Do you got those down? Are you sure? One quick test. Here we go. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. Here we go. Number one, hermeneutical principle given to us by Schofield is that the Old Testament is nation-centric. From Genesis 11, Acts 2 is about the nation of Israel. Number two, within the Old Testament, there's prophets and prophecies. These prophets and prophecies point to a glorious future of Israel under the reign of Christ. Number three, The church did not exist until the book of Acts. It was a new thing. Number four, threefold division of the human race, Jew, Gentile, and the church of God. And that's number five. From Acts 2 to Revelation 4, the Bible is church-centric. 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 The nation of Israel has been set aside, they would argue, right? Even though he hasn't used that word. Everybody got that? Okay. Then he says this. The remaining chapters of that book uh, complete the story of humanity and the final triumph of Christ. I'm not going to make that a hermeneutical principle. He could have stated it in a different way that could have been a hermeneutical principle, but we won't get into that since he doesn't mention it here. All right? Then... So everybody got that? Are y'all, are y'all down with it? Can y'all pass that? So Schofield given us five hermeneutical principles. And whether people like it or not, they serve as people's presupposition that they read into the text. I'm not saying whether they're right. I'm not saying whether they're wrong. I'm saying you have to be able to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I seeing this in the Bible because I have actually found it in the Bible or because I'm actually just reading it 
into the Bible. And I don't care what system you use. I don't care if it's Lordship Salvation for MacArthur, which dominates most churches. This gets placed on top of the Bible. I don't care if it's amillennialism, preterism, semi-Pelagianism. I don't care what the system is. It gets placed there, and then you don't realize what's happening to you. And, and then you'll know, but you can see it because as soon as you start arguing with someone, what do they do? They go home and they Google. They find an article and then they come back and regurgitate to me what they found on the internet. I'm like, that's not Bible study, man. I could go find me two articles. So then when you say, here's what you need to do. Go spend the next six months looking up every verse that mentions this. Does anyone ever come back and do that? No, but guess what they will still tell me? That I'm wrong. You know why I'm wrong? Because they found an article on the internet that said, I'm wrong. Okay, well, I found an, an article on the internet that says, you're wrong. So now do we see who can find the most articles? Well, the majority doesn't always mean you're right because Jeremiah was in the minority. Luther was in the minority. The Anabaptists were in the, okay, yes, I don't know if that always works right. You know what? So, like, how, how do you, like, there's got to be a better system. Well, what we claim is the system is that we're all connect, com, committed to what? That's what we claim. I will tell you it's a lie. The church is not committed to the Bible, even though we claim we are. We are just like Catholics. We have a system and we elect our popes and we listen to them. When you go home and you run to Google to look up an article, you're just running to the magisterium of your choosing. And that, the problem is you can't get anyone to see that. All right? Now, remember, we're in the section known as the panoramic view of the Bible, or when we have to separate this by hours, sometimes it gets confusing. Because right there, I've just been giving you all these principles of his hermeneutics. So I'm going to have to step out of that outline and go back to our original outline. He's giving us a panoramic view of the Bible. He's given us one, two, three, four different things. I'm not going to repeat them. And now he's going to give us to the fifth one. And I'm not even going to read the fifth one, um, only because of for time's sake, um, but because we've dealt with this in great, great detail. His fifth point in his panoramic view of the Bible is he believes that the, well, actually, we're going to make this number six for our hermeneutic of Schofield. All right, we're going to make this the sixth point of his hermeneutic. His sixth point of his hermeneutic is he believes that the central theme of the Bible is Christ. So you can write that down as the sixth point of his thing. And I have major problems with this point. I, have made, I know that this makes me against every church in America, but that's okay. All right? Why do I have a problem with this point? Okay. Do I? No, I don't believe this should be a point. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about this a lot. Whenever you say the central theme of the Bible is Christ, my, now, I believe the central theme of the Bible is God, right? Okay, what I, my problem is when you say the central theme of the Bible is Christ, this creates a hermeneutic where then you find Christ and everything, and I think there's major problems with that because you're maybe inserting or you're doing eisegesis, you're reading him into a text where I don't believe sometimes he's to be found. 
And the minute I say that, everyone loses their... Go to any small group. Get in any little Bible study at any church in Abilene. And one of the things that we'll say, where, where did you see Jesus in the passage? And I'm like, nowhere, because he's not there. But it sounds good, right? Sounds super spiritual. But they argue. How is Schofield going to make this argument? Let's see if he uses language that puts some kind of a controlling factor here or if he just loses his mind. What do you think? Do you think he's going to control it or he's going to lose his mind? What do you think? Well, let's see. It is this manifestation of Jesus Christ, his person as God manifested in the flesh, his sacrificial death and his resurrection, which constitute the gospel. We can all say amen to that, can we not? Unto this, all preceding scripture leads from this all following... I'm going to read this again. Unto this, all preceding scripture leads. From this, all following scripture proceeds. The gospel is preached in the Acts and explained in the epistles. I got no problem with there. Christ, son of God, son of man, son of Abraham, son of David, thus binds the many books into one book. Seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, is the ultimate destroyer of Satan and his works. Seed of Abraham, he is the world blesser, seed of David. He is Israel's king, desire of all nations, exalted to the right hand uh, of God. He is the head over all the church, um, which is his body. While to Israel and the nations, the promise of his return forms the one and only rational expectation that humanity will yet fulfill itself. Meanwhile, the church looks momentarily for the fulfillment of the special promise. I will come again and receive you unto myself. John 14. To him, the Holy Spirit throughout the gospel bears testimony. The last book of all, the consummation book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1. Okay, now the way he says it's there, preaches good, sounds good. I don't have a problem necessarily with the way he states it. Let me explain again my problem. Okay, right, yeah, there's a lot of scriptures there. He, did, he just kind of grouped them together and threw something with Jesus connected to it. It preaches good, it sounds good, right? Like you've seen, what, remember the famous song, I think it was in the 90s, it was a Christian song that talks about in Genesis, Jesus is whatever. In Exodus, he's the, he's the serpent. And in Leviticus, he's the sacrifice. I don't even remember how the song went. And everybody's like, oh, it's so good. It's so beautiful. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, it's great. But is it theologically accurate? Well, in some ways, it's theologically accurate because I got no problem seeing certain elements of Jesus in those books. The problem is people will go and just find Jesus, try to force Jesus into everything. And what is my hermeneutical guiding principle? is first of all, if I'm in the Old Testament and I see something, if the New Testament applies it to Jesus, what do I do? I apply it to Jesus. If I find something in the Old Testament and the New Testament doesn't apply to Jesus, what do I do? I pump the brakes and I go, I don't know if this is about Jesus. Now, what do I look for? If the text is just weird, it doesn't make any sense historically, you're like, this is... Something doesn't make sense here. Then I may look for some possible connections to something spiritual, but I'm very careful. But people will go, where does everyone go for this to try to prove this point? What scripture does everyone run to to try to prove this point? Matthew 
Remember the, uh, Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus? Everybody go find that passage really quick. We looked at this just a couple of weeks ago. I want to make sure everyone has this down. It's in a gospel, and it's not called Matthew, Mark, or John. Okay, I think it's Luke. Maybe I'm wrong. I believe it's Luke. Who can find it? Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Walk to Emmaus. That used to be a big thing around here. Who can find it? If you can find it, you get $50 from Mr. Goodlett. Of? I told you it was Luke. Luke 24. Okay. What scripture does it start in? Everyone look at it. Just please, everyone know this scripture. Because churches all over this town quote this all the time. It makes me want to just start burning things to the ground and screaming and throwing things. And I know you're going to say that's an overreaction, but not really. Okay. Luke 24, starting at what verse? 25. All right. Uh, I'm in Luke. You said 24, right? All right. Okay. Uh, verse 25. Jesus is speaking, right, to these men on the road to Emmaus. And he says, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at... This Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What is the trick that preachers do every time they preach this? They preach it as if this means every scripture is about him. It does not say that. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he pointed out the things that were about him, not that they were all about him. The road to Emmaus wasn't a 17-year walk. He couldn't have started at Genesis 1-1 and went from Genesis 1-1 to the concluding book of the Old Testament and look at every verse and say, this is how you see me. That's not how it worked. He went to the sections within Moses and the prophets. Now, some will argue that's not even an actual division of the entire Old Testament. That only deals with the first five books and then the prophetic books. And where the pro- That means you would skip what? All the poetry books, maybe all the historical books, right? So now you're probably only... De- and then when it says prophets, is that all the prophets, the minor and the major, or just the major, right? But we clearly, that's only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then whichever prophetic books he may have been referring to. So even there it tells you it's not the whole Bible, right? Unless you're going to say that that's a division, but most don't divide it that way, right? So, and we know he's only on a walk. He's not like, hey, we're going to have a school and you're going to come week after week after week. This is a general walk and discussion. So he starts with Moses and says, Here's what, how they pointed to me. Yeah, these are the sections that are about me. And, and, and I don't know how the church has turned that into every verse is about Jesus. It's not. We just know that logically, right? Okay, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Okay, but we'll put that down as what? Number six of Schofield's hermeneutics, right? Number six, that he believes the... The central theme is Christ. All right, now, oh boy, we're going to try to do this in 15 minutes, all right? Here we go. 
All right. Now remember, we've mentioned this. We're mentioning this, but we're going to make this number seven for our, our hermeneutical principles of Schofield. Okay? We're just right now just laying out the, the hermeneutical principles, all right? So let's review them really quick. Number one, nation-centric Old Testament. Genesis 11 to Acts 2 is all about the nation of Israel. Number two, in the Old Testament, we have prophets and prophecies, and they prophesy a glorious future for Israel under the reign of Christ. Number three, the new thing is the church, and it starts in Acts 2. Number four, threefold division of the human race, Jew, Gentile, church God. Number five, church-centric New Testament from Acts 2 to Revelation 4. Right? Next, Christ is the central theme of the Bible. That's number six, right? Number seven. You ready? Number seven. The principle of first mention or first and last mention. This is a big thing for Schofield. Whenever you're going to deal with an issue, you go look at the first verse that mentions it and the last verse that mentions it. And he believed that that's, that's a guiding insight into how to understand the principle. In fact, his entire reference system is based off that principle. Okay, do what? Well, and we've already talked about it first, but it, you, can, you see this in his reference system. Yeah, he doesn't necessarily explain it, but I mean, it, it's there. I mean, we're getting ready to look at where he explains it, at least in my Bible, all right? So, everybody ready here? Okay, I'll show you how this shows up. Does everybody understand first and last mention? They're looking at notes online. Okay, all right. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, everybody, so listen, everybody, does everyone understand how the first and last mention system works? So let's say we're going to study baptism. What do you do? Find the first verse where it's mentioned and the last. If we're going to talk about justification, first and last. Sanctification, first and last. Now, they they say that this is always, now it's like how much do you derive from that? You don't know, but in some cases it works really good. And so you're like, hey, now, but if it doesn't really work to your benefit, what do you typically do? You just kind of throw it out. You just kind of throw it out. Right, that's kind of the way it works. But it is interesting to always do that. I'll show you how this works. Right here on page two of Schofield, the 1917 edition. I don't know if this is in the 1909, but the 1917. It says, how to use the subject references. How to use the subject references. The subject references... Lead the reader from the first clear mention of a great truth to the last. The first and last references and parentheses are repeated each time so that whatever, so wherever a reader comes upon a subject, he may recur to the first reference and follow the subject or turn at once to the summary of the last reference. Right, so right there, his entire system is based off first and last. He has illustration. 
all right? At illustration, here's what he does, right? He says, at Mark 1, 1. Now, if I go to Mark 1, 1, if I go to Mark 1, 1, we'll see if, we can, if this makes sense. If it gets confusing, that's okay, all right? Here we go, Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everybody see that? Now, if I go back to my illustration here, guess what he says? All right, hang on. He just says illustration. He says of, uh, he goes illustration at Mark 1.1, and that's in parentheses, right? Now, underneath that, it has the word gospel. Does everybody see the word gospel in Mark 1.1? In fact, it says the, the beginning of the gospel, all right? So then, from, uh, from verse 1, then he goes to, um, I think it's Mark, look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Is the word gospel in verse 14? Okay, what does it say in ver- verse 14? Okay, and in verse 15, is it in verse 15? Okay, it's there, right? Okay, all right. Then, um, then look at Revelation fourteen six. All right, fourteen six. What do you have in fourteen six? Okay, everlasting gospel. Now, guess what? That would be the last reference to gospel. Okay? Now, so this is what he says. Here, gospel is the subject. Verse 1, 14, and 15 of Mark 1 show where it is at the particular place. Mark 8, 35 is at the next reference in the chain. Everybody look at Mark 8, 35. Tell me if the word gospel is there. Mark 8.35. It's there. Everybody see it? All right. He goes, is, uh, is the next reference in the chain and the reference in parentheses are the first and last. So the first and last is obviously Revelation 14.6 and Mark 1.1. Now, I, my c- concern is, is that first and last, I, I, I don't know exactly how he's doing this. Can someone look up the word gospel in a electronic concordance? Is it used in Mark or Matthew? Because he doesn't have a reference to Matthew. So I'm, I'm, I'm just like, how is he doing this first, first and last from like first where it's mentioned in this book to the last in the Bible? Or it is used in Matthew? Yes, I don't know. That's why I don't understand what he does here. Because what he should have done is the first reference to gospel is Matthew what? Matthew 4.23. Yeah, so I don't know why he just starts. Maybe he's like, here's the first reference in this book. I don't know. So it's a weird use of first and last. Does everybody see that? That's a weird usage. Yeah, it says the beginning. Maybe, but still, if you're going to truly do it, it should have taken us there. I'm going to look at the... 
Oh, maybe. Oh. Good. Look at Stephen. Stephen be proving us all. That's, that's pretty good. All right, that's, that's pretty good. No, wait. No, wait a minute here. Uh, hang on. No, no, that's how he does it. That's how he does it. But uh, that's, someone grab a Bible dictionary really quick. Okay, that, that's, a good, that's a good question, Stephen. All right. For those listening online, Stephen just said, well, wait a minute, which one was written first? Look up Matthew and look up Mark in a Bible dictionary and say, which one did they say? I think Mark is the first. Dates. So Mark, I think Mark is considered the earliest gospel. I think that's true. Mm. Okay, well, then see, then he's not following that. Okay, see, he's not following that. All right, that's a, that was a good theory. But it's just, it's, if he's really using first and last, then in parentheses, he should have done what? Mark 1, 1, and then he should have put Matthew 4, and then Revelation 14, 6. That's what he should have done. So I don't understand exactly. I just want you to see that, that this, but please, let's be fair. Let's be fair here, all right? Let's be fair to Schofield, all right? Because to do this in 1917 would have required what? Manual looking up, right? Trying to create a man. I mean, he couldn't just do a what? He didn't have an electronic doing anything. Like how quick Sarah found uh, the first use of gospel? How, how quickly did that take her? And I tell you, very long. Only because she could just simply grab her phone and do what? Right, right. So, so I'm just saying, he was trying to elaborate a system, how well the system works. It's easy for us to sit there going, well, come on, man, just ask Siri, what's your problem, right? Okay, but he didn't have those tools. Okay. Okay, that's what I thought. But for some reason, Schofield seems to date it in his Bible earlier. But that's, but I, so maybe he was ultimately at some point they were going with that. I don't know. But I do believe most people say Mark is the, for, the, the, is the gospel that others borrowed from, or at least Matthew borrowed from. So either case, I just want you to see that the first and last is a major issue here for him. And he tried to establish a system. I just, I, I, I still, I don't quite understand exactly that illustration, but at least I wanted us to see it, all right? Then, underneath that, I know that took longer than I wanted, all right? Then underneath this, all right, here we go. You'll notice in the Schofield Bible, he has the Pentateuch, and he gives us an introduction to it, right? To the first five books of Moses. We're going to skip that. Then, uh, in Genesis, this is where we, we're going to really go quickly here, and we'll stop with this. Then next, then tonight, if we're here, we're going to be able to start dispensationalism. Okay, so here we go. Everybody ready? All right. You're going to notice a couple of things here. After he gives an introduction to the Pentateuch, he gives an introduction to the book of Genesis. All right? Which is very important, okay? Uh, and he, he, he names some very important things here. I won't I, won't, I want to jump to that, but I'm going to skip it because I want you to see something, all right? Now, in, please note, this is so important. I'm looking at this, if you're looking at a Schofield Bible, it says, uh, so the first book of Moses, Genesis, obviously he's going with Mosaic authorship, right? He gives the introduction and then look what he does. It says chapter one, and then right underneath chapter one, he has a heading. Guess what he calls it? The original creation, 
and he gives us Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That is the original creation. And then underneath verse 1, guess what he has? Earth made waste and empty by judgment. So he believed that the original creation happened where? Genesis 1.1, and then between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2, what happened? Judgment occurred. Then Genesis 1.2 is what? The new creation, or the recreation. This is known as the gap theory. The gap theory. And so before we even get near dispensationalism, he just established an entire hermeneutic in how to interpret creation, how to interpret the ages of the earth, and it has profound impact on how you interpret other passages of Scripture. So, guess what we need to write down? We have another hermeneutical point for Schofield. And what is it? The gap theory. Well, don't say we're wrong. We're just going to put the gap theory down. And I'm going to show you immediately its, its impact on hermeneutics, okay? So let's review this really quick. And then I'm just going to show you how it impacts, and then we're going to stop, all right? So we're going to be done close to noon. All right, here we go. All right, everybody ready? All right, the quicker you do the review, the better. All right, Schofield's hermeneutical principles are as follows. Number one. Nation-centric Old Testament, Genesis 11 to Acts 2, is about the nation of Israel. Number two, within the Old Testament are prophets and prophecies that prophesy a glorious future for the nation of Israel under the reign of Christ. Number three, a new thing shows up in the book of Acts called the church. Number four, threefold division of the human race. Jew, Gentile, the church. Number five, New Testament is church-centric, going from Acts 2 to Revelation 4, right? And that's, which number was that, 5? Okay, because numbers, I'll get confused. Number 6, Christ is a central theme of the whole Bible. Some of that sounds good, but it's how far you take it, all right? Number 7, principle of first and last, even though his reference system seems a little kind of convoluted and confused, we still know that that's going to be a major issue with him. He's trying to make sure you understand whenever you're studying the Bible, go to the first mention and the last mention, and he thinks that that is going to be significant in you drawing a conclusion in regards to, all right? Number eight, the gap theory, the gap theory. Now, you want to see how this impacts hermeneutics almost like instantaneously? You want to see? Here we go. You ready? This is the most fascinating thing. And I, and the only reason I know this is I spent an entire semester at a Bible Institute in Lawton, Oklahoma. And guess what we did? Is we spent an entire semester taking apart the gap theory as taught in the Schofield Reference Bible. That's all we did. We had to buy a Schofield Reference Bible and we had to follow all of the hermene- how the hermeneutical impact on the gap theory on the text. And guess how quickly it shows up? It shows up instantaneously. You ready? So, here we go. Chapter, so here's in the actual text of the Bible. Chapter 1, right underneath that he puts the original creation. Now immediately, what does that tell you? And see, I, I feel bad for a new Christian. 
A new Christian buying that, they don't realize what's happening to them. That phrase, the original creation, that's not in the Bible. That's in the note, but it's right there next to the text. I mean, afterwards, come up here and look at it for yourself, right? Because I've got the anniversary edition. This is exactly how it looked like in 1917, right? So come look at it if you need to. Then underneath that, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then immediately after that, in between the verses, guess what it says? Earth made waste and empty by judgment. And guess what is in parentheses? Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 26. Immediately, hermeneutical implication, is it not? Jeremiah, we just spent 70 hours and three months on the book of Jeremiah as a church if you participated. 70 hours. You guys should know Jeremiah better than any person alive. All right? Jeremiah 4. Everyone go to Jeremiah 4. Tell me what you see. I'm not even going to read it for you. Everyone online, go look at it for yourself. If you're driving your car, you got to pull over, okay? All right? Jeremiah chapter 4, 23 through 26. Don't, you don't need me. Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. Tell me what you find there. Okay, I'm going to have to read it because you're being really, really quiet. Okay, you're being really... Okay, well, true, true. I just figured someone would read it really quick and say, oh, I see why it's there. Okay, all right, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. Everybody ready? All right. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. And I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down, and the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. Now, what he does, he goes here, and he says, oh, 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 Jeremiah is talking about this judgment that occurred between... Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. That is the most ludicrous thing I have ever heard in my entire life. Okay? Okay? Why do I know that that's not what he's referring to? The whole entire book of Jeremiah is not referring to a judgment that occurred between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. We studied this book over and over and over. Go back for a fuller context. Jeremiah 4 1. Jeremiah 4 1. Jeremiah 4 1. Okay, immediately. Israel was not in between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. All right? Verse 2. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskin of your heart, you men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 5. Declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem. Are you getting an idea? 
Look at verse 7. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles. This is referring to clear nations that are going to come up against Judah. All right? Look at verse 10. Then said I, O Lord, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem. Verse 11. Jerusalem. Okay? Oh, I see. Where else do we want to go? Uh, verse 14. Oh, Jerusalem. Uh, verse 15. Dan, Ephraim. Okay. Uh, make ye mention to the nations. Behold, publish against Jerusalem. Verse, the cities of Judah. Does everyone see that the entire set, verse... Uh, I think you get the basic idea, right? Do you get the basic idea? What what verse? Uh, 22. Oh, from my, yeah, my people. He's referring to? Yeah, yeah. He's referring to Judah. So everybody see, there's no way to then jump in there and go, wait a minute, this is referring to a judgment that occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Does everyone see that? Does everyone understand that? Okay, I tried to... Uh, I tried to belabor the point if you see there's no way to read it that way there's no way to read it that way so immediately though you see how one little hermeneutical principle introduced in genesis 1 1 immediately impacts how you interpret jeremiah right Oh, right, right, exactly. Of Israel or Judah, right. Or of the earth, right, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, wait, we can't, I I know how Schofield would probably argue that, but I I do see where you're going. But you see that? See how that's a hermeneutical, does everyone derive, everyone see that, okay? I don't want everyone to get caught up on the gap theory right now. I want you to see that we're, how early are we into the Schofield reference Bible? First verse. And immediately, with the first, I'm saying within, within, after the introductory material. Once we get into the Schofield study Bible itself, we get to Genesis 1-1, and in fact, even before the verse, even before the verse, what does he have as a chapter heading? The original creation of that verse. He immediately is throwing in that this is going to guide the hermeneutic. And I can't, this is why, this is why, in fact, when I went through this at the Bible Institute in Lawton, this is what, what immediately started scaring me about uh, study Bibles. Because I realized what Christians do constantly, right? And I've watched it happen even here. I, I will say something, someone will start arguing with me, and immediately I know what they're doing. They're back there looking at their study Bible, and immediately I'd be like, well, I, I, I got the same note. It, I got the same notes right here. I mean, I can read the same note. Like, that's not, that's not the way we do things. Now, I got no problem using a study Bible as what? A reference tool that we work on the text, and then we go look at what other people have to say about the text to compare their conclusion with our conclusion and then see where we go. And then we tear down, build up, and go there. But I want you to see how quickly. So, in conclusion... 
how many points, how many hermeneutical points have we taken from the introductory material from Schofield that he gives his readers and basically how to interpret the Bible? We have eight, right? Do we have eight? Oh, he is. It's the last place that you... Oh, oh, look at Sarah. I, I didn't even catch that. And I think he does in his notes have it in parentheses, which the parentheses establish the first and last. Remember he said in, good catch. So that's what he did, right? The first and last is coming up here because Genesis 1-2 says without four men, void. That's the first. And then the last reference is, he went to Jeremiah and uses the same language. Therefore, it establishes, oh, that is very good. Good job, Sarah. That's very good. All right, so let's, so let's review and then we're done. Here we go. How many points of hermeneutics has Schofield given us? And we haven't even really got to dispensationalism yet. He's given us eight. Number one, the Old Testament is nation-centric. Genesis 11 to Acts Two is about the nation of Israel. Within the Old Testament, there are prophets and prophecies, and they prophesy of a glorious future for the nation of Israel under the reign of Christ. Number three, a new thing will show up, and it's called the church, and it shows up where? Acts, all right? Number four, y'all got to keep track of the numbers, okay? okay? Number four, threefold division of the human race, Jew, Gentile church. Number Five. New Testament is church-centric and goes from Acts 2 to Revelation 4, and it's all about the church. Number six, right? Christ is the central theme of the whole Bible. Number seven, the principle of first and last, which we now just saw it come into play in Genesis 1-1 and Jeremiah 4 with the gap theory. I'm so glad Sarah caught that. Next. And then number eight is gap theory. There we go. Now, any Christian you meet, many of them will be operating from these very hermeneutical principles telling you that they are Bible students when all they really are are students of a system. And they've been reading it into the Bible their entire lives. You'll meet other Christians who do not go with this system. But they're operating from a different system. And they will tell you they're students of the Bible. Now, what would happen if we could burn all of these systems to the ground and actually start with the text? I don't know if we would ever come to an agreement because it would only take about how long before someone built a system. Two seconds. And why do we build systems? Because no matter how many times we claim this, because I know it's the Protestant like rallying cry, The Bible is simple and can be understood by the average person. We don't need a magisterium. We don't need a pope because we can understand it. Oh, we talk a big game, but nobody wants to actually do the work to understand it. So what do we do? We come to a church where someone hands us a system. We call that Bible study. Someone hands us principles of a system and we call it a sermon. And guess what is kept from us? I will argue the Protestant church keeps people just as far from the scripture as the Catholic church. 
The Catholic Church says, no, the magisterium and the Pope stands between you and the Bible because we are the only ones who can interpret it. The Protestant Church says, we put our system between you and the Bible because our system is the only one that can interpret it. And if you don't agree with our system, you are anathema. I will argue nothing has changed. There. Happy, happy. Isn't that a good? Are we glad? See? Yeah. Don't you love coming here for all the positive encouragement that you get? You say, well, what do we do? Okay. Well, go to Vegas is what we said in the last hour, right? Okay. There you go. Go to Vegas. And Stephen, that's where Stephen's going. He's going to, who knows? He'll be calling Sarah tonight, you know, about midnight drunk. And he'll be like, pastor told me to. I'm joking for those listening online. I am joking. I'm not telling him to go to Vegas and get drunk. It's a joke. Okay. All right. People don't understand like that. You're not allowed to do it. Oh, my sense of humor. I know. It's a little dark. Okay. But by the time you get realized how, how bad it, it is kind of depressing, is it not? To think we just replaced the magisterium with a system. Kind of depressing. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Forgive us for hiding your word by our man-made systems. Forgive us for following those systems while claiming to love your word. All we can ask, Lord, is that we would be committed to trying to get back to your word at the expense of our systems. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Uh-huh.